Well, tonight, like I said, we're going to be in Amos chapter 3, 4, and 5, and I say that because the uh, chapters 4 and 5 go absolutely uh, rapidly, and yet I want to read something real quick as we start, and you know, the prophets, the prophets have, the minor prophets point to the end times. You know, we know what the end of the days are going to be, we, and the prophets point to the day of the Lord and, and Armageddon and so forth, but they also pointedly uh, looking to Israel. Israel is obviously the apple of God's eye, and we'll, we might get into a little bit of uh, in that in Deuteronomy. You'll find that in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And uh, also, in fact, before I go here, why don't we real quick start out tonight in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7. Flip real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's always nice to know that, that God has spe- says specific things about His elect, whether it's Israel and His program for that, and even us. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, just two verses I want to look at. It's important to keep these things in mind when we look at these prophets, especially towards the end days and how God is dealing with Israel. You know, this replacement theology, this, this idea that, that Israel is no more, or that uh, the church has taken over the promises of Israel and so forth, you have to go way back to Genesis to really uh, even start to, to see the fallacy of, of that. And if Deuteronomy chapter 7, let's just look at verses 6 and 7 real quick. God's saying to Israel, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Verse 7, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Verse 8, Because the Lord loves you, and because you would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and, and so on and so forth. He's a, Israel is a special treasure to the Lord, not because of anything they have, but because of His choosing. When God chooses, He chooses because He's acting out of love. And that's why Dave Hunt, for example, writes about uh, this replacement theology or Calvinism or whatever. What love is this? When God sets His love on a people, He does not renege. He does it because He's faithful. He does it because He's loving. He does it because He loves you. And he loves me. And so when we get into the mind of prophets, remember we start in Daniel, and I love this, and, and, and this is such a recap. When we get to the end of these minor prophets, we are going to be drenched in the fact of two things. Number one, God loves Israel. And number two, God's word is faithful to his word. Now that might sound kind of, uh, you know, kind of redundant, but he is faithful to his word. What he, his word is synonymous with his name, and that's important to remember. Um, but before I start tonight, we have so many times in the Minor Prophets, and when I mean Minor Prophets, you know, we're talking about Joel, Amos, Hosea, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Malachi, you know, the, the prophets we're in right now. And they're, minor, they're not minor because they're insignificant, but mostly they're minor because they have a pointed view of judgment. They have a pointed view of the end times. You know, we go in the book of Isaiah, for example. Isaiah is not classified as a minor prophet, but if you read the 66 chapters in Isaiah, 
And you cover the, the barrage of the Bible. I mean, from everything to how wonderful God is in creation, how merciful he is, what the end times are going to be like. You know, we learn about the kingdom, the thousand millennial kingdom, the prophet Isaiah. We realize that the lion is going to lay with the lamb. There's not going to be any more hurt in this holy mountain and so forth. But when you get to these minor prophets that we're in now, Hosea and Amos, just narrowing down the scope of prophecy concerning Israel and going up to the end of days. We started with Daniel. How Daniel prophesied of his people, fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah, how they spent seven years in captivity of Babylon. And then he also, we started out, remember in chapter 2, how he gave uh, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream about that statue. I remember when I was a young Christian saying, wow, I don't understand that. I wish somebody would explain this to me. Well, they did. Uh, I had a wonderful pastor that went through the Minor Prophets very early in my Christian life. So very early I saw the benefit of understanding. We're going to have a, uh, where the Word says, he says nothing unless he reveals it to his prophets. It's very, very important. So we have Daniel, again, interpreting these the run of the ages, so to speak, through kingdoms that God has allowed to be set up and then destroyed. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 have always been a puzzling area as far as future, the future war of Gog and Magog and so on and so forth. Um, we don't have time tonight to get into the interpretation of fascinating chapters. But one thing I want to pull out of uh, chapter uh, 39 tonight, real quick, is that sometimes when we see the prophets, and they're so speaking of the judgment of Israel, the judgment of Israel, the judgment of Israel, well, they are speaking of the judgment of Israel in light of the end times, in light of, of, the, of Armageddon, of the day of the Lord. When is it in... Um, Ezekiel 39, God says amazing things. He is punishing Israel. And he says that the Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. So they're going to know the apple of God's eye went into captivity because they were of their iniquity, of their sin. Because they were unfaithful to me. This is, by the way, Ezekiel 39, 23. So the Gentiles, again, shall know, or the nations that the house of Israel went in captivity for their iniquity, because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, have I dealt with them and hid my face from them. But listen to this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captivities of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name and he says all the world will know that I am the God of Israel you know you when we see the absolute uh, integrity that God has concerning his word concerning that back in Deuteronomy this little band of, of, of people called the Hebrews that were brought out of idolatrous nation. That's what I think is amazing, too. Remember, way back in Abram, when he called them out, Ur of the Chaldees was absolutely given over to idolatry. And, and so from day one, it wasn't because uh, these people were anything that God could glean from. It's because God had set their love on them. So when we read in the prophets, these amazing 
the punishment, and God's always pleading to them, turn from your ways, seek me, or else punishment is coming. So what does that mean for us today? You know, is, is Israel lost? Well, no. Israel has been set aside, if you will. God is, is, is building his church. So we're between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. This is where we're at right now. And this is where a lot of the prophets are pointing to. So God is building his church, and when the church age is completed, he's going to snatch his people out of this world, the rapture, the catching away of the saints, and then God's timetable will start again. The 70th week will run its course. And a lot of this 70th week, especially the last three and a half years, these minor prophets are writing about. And Israel is the focus. How do we know when the Antichrist finally reveals himself and, and turns to his full-blown wickedness? We know this because he's going to crawl himself into that temple and desecrate it. And once that happens, God says, that is it. You know, my wrath is intervening into, into the affairs of men, and it's going to run for an awful three and a half years. And surprisingly, in that three and a half years, concerning the nations, what does Jeremiah call it? The time of Jacob's trouble. You can't separate them. It is so intricately involved. Once we understand the minor prophets, the Bible flows as far as what they call eschatology or the end times uh, understanding. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. So I just want to recap in verse three, real or chapter three of Amos, real quick, and then we'll get going rapidly. Here, this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel. You know, you read the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39. God says twice, they speak to them, O son of man, against God, you may God. I am against you. When God pronounces that, woe is coming. <laughs> he says an amazing thing, and I, and I love this. In verse 2, he says, only have I known of all the families of the earth. You are the only one have I known. Of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. Again, just like he says in, in Ezekiel 39. Because they're his own, and because they are the apple of his eye, he's going to punish them. Because he loves them. Wow. We talked about last week that even in the Christian's uh, aspect of election, it does not negate God's chastening. If a, if a Christian lives in unconfessed sin, God will chasten him. God will punish him because he loves them. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, I had a man asked me one time, we were talking about, he had a couple young kids, and, and he says, boy, it sure, it sure is tough raising kids. I don't know where to start. Well, God's Word tells you where to start. You train him up, you love him, and you nurture him, and you guide him. And when he gets off the track, you get him back on. And if he gets into an area when he gets older, they should be, and you correct him. And sometimes that correction is difficult. But you do it because you love him. And that's what God is doing here. That, that language, I looked that up, and I, and I spent a lot of time musing over this. In verse 2, he says, you only have I known. That means, that's intimacy. Surely God knows everything. But God knows. He's intimately. I know my wife more than anybody else knows her. Because she's mine. 
I have pledged an oath to her, to love her until the end. That oath, God says to Israel, among you of all the nations of the earth, you are the one I have known. Wow. And then, of course, we talked about verse 3, and I love that fact that can two walk together unless they're agreed. Well, let's take God and Israel. God chose to be their loving God. If they would obey him and walk with him and be in agreement of life, they would have everything freely. They would have carte blanche. You know, it's like when David sinned and Nathan came to David and such and such, and basically God said, I have given you everything. I've given you carte blanche, basically, and yet you've done this. They aren't agreed. That's why they didn't walk together. And yet we talked about a little bit about the Christian and his God. We agree to walk with him as master and Lord and walk in the will of his life and our will, his will should be our will. Then we please him in all things, living to uplift him. And yet when we don't do that, when confess sin, can two walk together unless they're agreed? No. And that is the, that is the, the chafening, if you will, point here that Amos is bringing out. Well, and he explains us about a lion in the forest when he has no prey, will he roar? Will the young lion cry out in his den if he has nothing? Will a bird fall in the snare of his fight if there is no trap for it? But what I want to talk about as we're leaving this chapter 3 is verse 7. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Wow. How do we know what's going to happen in the last days? How do we know what's happening right now? How do we know that, as some say in this, in this replacement idea, that the Israelites are over in the land illegally? They shouldn't be there. That's not their land. What are they doing over there? That's, that's a proponent of a lot of these people. They're over there illegally. Hank Canegraaff says that, that the, legal, the, the uh, Israelites are in, illegally in that land. It's not their land anymore. Yes, it is. God promised that land to Abraham. So like I say, you gotta, you, if you want to tear apart this idea of God losing somehow the apple of his eye, you've got to go way back to the beginning of the word of God. I, the Lord God, I change not. Let me tell you, I don't care how, if you are his, I don't care how rebellious you are, God will have the last word in your life. Because that's how much he loves you. That's how you can tell the good fathers from the not-so-good fathers. That's how you can tell the kids that have been reared in a home that they might rebel for a while, but like I like what Frank, Franklin Graham says about training up a child in the way he should go, and when he gets old, he views that verse, as well as I do, as train up a child in the ammunition of the Lord, it's the way he should go, and there's that valley there. And sometimes they in their 20s or 30s, whatever, they got to go and experience things, but when they get old, that stuff is going to come back, and the foundation of their life is built in there, and the seed of God starts growing. Sometimes it doesn't happen all at once. Sometimes fathers don't live to see the full fruition of, of their, their, uh, the fruit of the kids. But God lives forever, and he knows the beginning from the end. Does he know that all Israel, all spiritual Israel will be saved? Absolutely. But these things are revealed unto his, unto his uh, servants, the prophets. Wow.
And that's what we want to get a student. We want to know what the Word of God says. There's some people that say, Amos, Amos. I have heard of that. In the Old Testament, I, I don't know, you know. And it's not, we don't make fun of that. We, it's just that they, it's not taught today. The prophets are not taught today, you know. And it's very, very difficult to walk in the fullness of the Christian life in the New Testament without knowing the, the seed of the Old Testament. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. I love that saying. Because that is biblical. Can't have one without the other. We got to we want to be balanced here. And God's speaking through His prophets even today. They're relevant for today. What a fallacy for people to say these documents got to go. They're outdated. We need new revelation. That's hogwash. This is all the revelation that God has fit to give us. This is all we need. Chapter four. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. We also see that vernacular of language in Psalm 22, but I think in here, if we take it in context, we're talking in a female uh, context here, because uh, at the end of the verse 1, it says, Who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. The Lord is scorning these sacrifices that, that His people are constantly placing on the altar before Him. They're sacrificing them, but their heart is far from them. That's what Jesus said. And I believe He's echoing that as well through the times we have now. How many people worship the Lord with their lips, but their heart is far from them? No longer have so much problem. You know, I was talking to Nance before tonight. Marital problems are running rampant. The families are being divided. Churches are being divided. People can't seem to, to get a grip on anything. We have a grip on everything. Because he who is rich became poor, and through his poverty we might become rich. And that means rich spiritually, rich that our soul might delight itself in fatness, as the Bible says. So why is there so much depression and, and, and poverty spiritually? Why are families breaking up? Well, I think one of the reasons why is what God is getting on Israel for is that they worship them with their lips. They're going through the, the ritual, but their heart is far from them. They have their hand on the sacrifice, but their mind and their hearts on their idol over here, and, and sexuality, and, and all these other things. So hear this word, you cows of Bajan, you on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. Verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the day shall come upon you. Wow, the day shall come upon you, when he will take you away with fish hooks, and your prosperity with fish hooks. You will go through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into harmon, says the Lord. Verse 3. Let me read you something uh, that I just thought was kind of fascinating from a gentleman by the name of Dave Levy. I just found this the other day. Remember we've talked in the past that America, and, and the Bible talks about in the prophets three ways that, that nations go under in the spirit of this, of this world. One, and he, he says the same thing here, one is social injustice. The other is sexual morality, and the third is spiritual idolatry. And when those three, three things run rampant, God is right in the door waiting judgment. Think about these things. Listen to what David Lovey says. Many sense that America is wandering down the same path as ancient Israel did. The nation is full of social injustice, sexual morality, 
and spiritual idolatry. The good life of peace and prosperity has lulled the nation into a false sense of security. Preachers' warnings are not taken seriously, therefore they go unheeded. Simply could it be that God's roar will soon be heard against that this nation? Hear this word, O children of America. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. You know, we were talking the other day, uh, my wife and I and a few other people, about the days of Lot, the days of Noah. What constitutes the days of Lot? What constitutes the days of Noah? Violence and sexual immorality. You know, it's, it's not good today. It's, it's politically incorrect, so to speak, to talk about homosexuality. But if you read in the book of Proverbs, for example, that, that is an abomination, but so is a haughty look. So is a lying tongue. So is adultery. So is any other kind of, of idol worship. It's all abomination. It makes God sick to his spiritual stomach. But yet the attitude of sexual immorality goes beyond that act. It, it permeates into every fiber of society. Now we have this transgender. We have all this stuff that's happening mixed with violent activity. You know, not only violence, the love of violence in these, in these, you know, the UFC and all these sports, but we also have violence in the fact of people not caring about human life. That's violent. When Adam, when uh, excuse me, uh, Cain killed Abel, that was violent. The fact of not associating yourself with a human life and tenderness or kindness or respect—that's violence, and that is exactly when it's running parallel. So you have the immoral section of of this atmosphere mixed with with violent section, and then you have the in, social injustice of society in general. Wow, these prophets are more relevant today, I think, than, than any other time. We're, we're, we're in this. And we can't escape it. And we as Christians cannot put our head in the sand and say, oh, well, you know, we live in Brookings. We really don't have that. Yes, we do. It is worldwide. When Jesus said, when they asked him the signs of his coming, he didn't say, well, you know, if you're in Jerusalem, you might see a little bit of my coming. And no, he said, the, let no man deceive you spiritual injustice, because the days of the Son of Man will be like Lot, will be like Noah. Let no man deceive you. Many false prophets will arise, and he goes right down. That's exactly what the prophets say will going to happen. So in verse 4, he says, Come to Bethel and transgress. This is, this is sarcasm. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply your transgression, because your sacrifice, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. You know, any other establishment after the God established his name in Jerusalem, any other altar site, whether it's Bethel or, or Gilgal, whatever, was, was idolatrous. He was making fun. He said, bring them, bring it in. If that's what's going to make you feel at ease, bring it in. But I'm telling you, Judgment is coming. Look at verse 5. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Well, we know from, from the Bible that, that uh, God used leaven as the fact of insincerity, of, of false doctrine, of an evil heart, of an attitude that wasn't pure before God, and so forth. He says, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim the innocence, the free will offerings, 
For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Look at verse 2 real closely. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. That's strong language. We better understand something there. For God to swear by himself because he is holy. That's an attribute of God. He is holy. He is merciful. He's justice. He's righteous. He's pure. So God is swearing by himself. Look, he says, Behold, the day shall come upon you when you when he will take you away with fish hooks. Keep your uh, your finger here real quick if you want. And turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. If time, might as well flip to some of these things. I get excited because, you know, it's... You know, there's a passage in, uh, I think it's Hebrews 4, it says, you know, that the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Think about that. It's alive and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts right between the bone and the marrow, right between the soul and the spirit, and goes right to the intents of the heart. People have not changed. People have not changed at all. Pro, or, excuse me, Psalm 89 Verses 33, we'll just read 33, 34, 35 to 37. Psalm 89, 33, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Verse 35, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Verse 36, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. Wait a minute. Jesus is coming back to set up the throne of his father David. Now, if, if, if Israel doesn't have a key part in, in the whole fabric of the Bible, something must be wrong here. God has sworn by his faithfulness. He didn't lie to David. He promised David one of his seeds will be established forever. His kingdom will never end. Look at again verse 36. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. Verse 37. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Wow. I happened to come across that the other day, and I thought, man, that is, that is absolutely wonderful. You know, I think that a lot of us would have a lot less problems in our life if we would realize the faithfulness of God. If he says, I will not leave you, that's what he means. He's not saying that so you'll get a fuzzy, tender feeling in the back of your neck. He's saying that so you can rest completely on him in his word. You know? Sometimes I think that, you know, we don't understand these things, so that, that we don't understand them, how can we live them? God never says, I want you to understand everything. He says, I want you to, to read my word and believe it. Every single bit of it. Every word of God is pure, the Bible says. And he's a shield around those who put their what? Trust in him. It's solid. Wow. So he says again, back in Amos 4, 5, Offer a sacrifice, thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love. Or in the fullness of language, this you love to do. You children of Israel, says the Lord. It's a continuation. You know, I think it's great how, you know, you go to First John and you read it, how, you know, uh, 
talking about sin, you know, if we, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Verse 1, you know, verse or chapter 1, verse 9. Then we go over to the third chapter, and the ninth verse, it says an amazing thing, that, that the Christian cannot go on in a lifestyle of sin because the seed of God is in him. He cannot continue to sin. He falls into sin here and there. We're talking as a lifestyle. We're talking as a way of walking, a change, as we're talking about on Sundays in, in James. There's a change that goes on here. And in this, this language that we're talking about here, look at verse 5 again. You know, offer that sacrifice. Go ahead. Do it even with leaven, if you will. Proclaim and announce free will offerings. For this you love to do. This is something that you love to do. Is God going to say, that's it. I'm going to pull back and I'm never going to deal with you again. No. He's going to punish them and chastise them. And let me tell you something. This is all leading up to the fact that when we're in that set, the last part of the, of the, the tribulation, the great tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, the reason why it's called that is the whole house of Israel is going to be punished, but they're going to be persecuted like no other time in history. That time is going to make Auschwitz look like a rehearsal. And I don't mean that lightly, because I weep at what they've done to the Jews through the years. That's how much God loves them. And yet, one of the reasons why he is coming back, and you and I will be with him to this earth, is he will bring the Jews through his chastening rod, and he will cleanse them himself. Wow. You read the, the early chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33, 34, and you see the tenderness of how much Jesus Christ is a shepherd to his people. He's a shepherd to us, but to Israel, he's so tender. Or Isaiah says he carries them as ewe lamb in his bosom. And when he, we, the whole world will see that, yeah, like Ezekiel said, they were chastised, they were taken away in punishment because of sin, but you know what? Hey, they're the apple of his eye. He's going to chastise them. He's going to cleanse them. And he's going to be the wonderment of the world. We will be with him through that thousand-year millennial reign as co-heirs of Christ. But the Jews, as his theoretical government, will be the wonderment of the known world. Now they're looked at vermin. Now anti-Semitics or Semitic rhetoric and, and talk is everywhere. But then they're going to be the wonderment of the world. This is why the prophets are so important to understand. We need to know there's more to this Christian life than just the do's and don'ts of, of a good Christian through the power of the Spirit. So verse 6, he says, Also I gave you cleanness of teeth, which is a, a King James way of saying he brought famine upon them. He chastised them with leanness. One thing I love, if you go back to Psalm 23, David says that he leads me in the path for his, in righteousness for his name's sake. I love that because we get to lay down by the tender grass and the water and get fat on his word and, and fat in luxury, but we also are led in the path of righteousness. And I believe that, you know, he doesn't allow us to get too fat. He doesn't allow us to obviously get too lean. He knows exactly what we need. And now he says, you want to go your own way? Listen, I'm going to give you leanness of... of uh, a food here of diet. I love that cleanliness of teeth in all your cities. Lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord, verse 6. Wow. 
Talk about stubborn. Who, who of us has not been stubborn in their Christian life before the Lord at one time or another? We're stubborn people. All of us like sheep. You know, I have a good illustration, and I, I will treasure this always. I used to live in Nevada, and my wife and I used to go from Gardnerville around the Bat Canyon to a place called Yarrington. And there's still old-time sheep herders back there. And you've probably heard them tell the story before. They have little sheepdogs, called little shepherd sheepdogs. And they're little gray and they're small, but boy, are they fierce. And they would take the, the sheep in a line. They would have two on each side. And all these dogs did constantly were run up and down and make sure the sheep stay in line. Because once the sheep are not watched, they want to go off. They want to do their own thing. And that's all these things do. And I thought, what a wonderful understanding of the Holy Spirit in our life. You know, that's God. That's the care of God, keeping us close. Um, you know, or the shepherd with that rod and staff. But God even even gave them leanness of, of, of meals, of the bread, the famine, and they still never return to him. Verse 7, I will also rain, withhold, excuse me, rain from you, when there were still three months to the harvest. Wow. I made it rain on one city, and I held rain from another city. Does that sound familiar? Goshen, in the land of Egypt, where the Israelites were. Boy, they weren't experiencing any of the problems that the Egyptians were. They weren't having the swarm of flies and the massive amount of frogs and the, and the absolute darkness and so on and so forth. It wasn't that way in the land of Goshen. God had, had mercy on his people bringing them out see God brings us out to bring us in that's what baptism is all about and he says but now if you're not going to return to me this is what I'm going to do to you withhold your rain it's going to rain in one city but it's not going to rain on the other one part was rained upon where it did not rain on the part the part that didn't get any rain withered verse 8 so two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water but they were not satisfied, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. You know, it's it's amazing thing in history. We, we have a quote, and I'll, I'll, if we get that for tonight, but I'll, I'll quote it now. The only thing, I don't know who, who originally came up with this, but it's served me. Um, so many years reading these prophets and just in general. Quote, one, the only thing men learn from history is that men never learn from history. It's amazing. And it is so true. <laughs> I put America in parentheses. How could we stand and see these other nations claim to be... Uh, you know, a, a nation that was originally uh, forged, if you will, through Christian principles and, and the Word of God, and yet look at where we're going. You know, it's it's amazing. Do not return to me. In the wilderness, I keep thinking of all these things as I read these things, you know, about the... Uh, the one city getting rain, the other not. And the, the famines, everything like this. You know, and again, that quote you know, about the learning from history is that men never learn from history. Uh, you know, they did these things, and, and the Jews are wandering through the wilderness. They complained. God fed them. God satisfied them with water. 
And then now because they will not follow him and turn from him, God is putting these plights on him. Look at verse, verse 9. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me. Verses 6, verses 8, and verses 9 right here. Yet you have not returned to me. Thus says the Lord. In verse 10, I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Remember, the only thing men learn from history is that men never learn from history. After the manner of Egypt, your young men I killed with the sword, verse 10, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand plunked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me. You should make a song out of that. Thus says the Lord, verse 12, Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Wow. You know, the Lord, uh, Nehemiah and Nehemiah 6 said this, listen to this, he was praying for, not only for the sins of his people, but this was an outcry of, of the holiness and justice of, of his God. He says in Nehemiah 9, 6, Thou, even thou, art a Lord alone. Thou hast made the heaven, I love this, the heaven of heavens with all their host in the earth and all the things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worships you. These were their household men. These were their scriptures that that these people grew up on, and yet somehow it had lost their flavor. Somehow it, they lost interest in the things of the Lord. And I think somehow, sometimes as Christians, we, you know, you, you, you first get saved, and you, you have that joy, and everything's great, and the world's different. You look at the world, I did anyway, and I looked at the world differently. I, everything was the Bible, and, and and it goes on for a period of time, mine was three or four months or whatever, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, you wake up one day and the rubber meets the road. You know? We live in a sin soaked world. We live in a world that crucified Christ, and still, what hasn't changed, it's gotten worse. What's going on? God is a God that wants to be believed. We look to Him through faith, and that's through His Word, every word. It's the act of the will that God wants. God wants to be loved. God wants to be cherished. God wants to be first. God wants to be our all in all. That takes the act of our will. And when, when we, as a people or as a nation or whatever, lose that, God is grieved. He's a jealous God. Now, now don't confuse that with the jealousy of this world. The world's apart. God is a jealous God because He loves you. You know, as we've often said, the, the love of today says, hey, I love you because I want you. You have something, you know. But God's love says, I love you because that is the way it is. I set my love on you. Not for anything you can give me, but what I can give you. God doesn't want your bank account. God doesn't want your... your God wants you. Your heart. Man. All these people that seek the Lord, that see Him in the unseen things, 
that live with him and dwell with him in the hard times as well as the good times, they know something of God that you would not have known in the otherwise. Wow. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. You know, as all I want to say to this, you know, I, I, I always try to read the Word of God in light of what God is telling me through the Word. You know, and as a pastor or as a communicator, first and foremost, I must check in closely my life. And yet I ask the Lord, I said, I pray that we would, we would examine ourselves that we would confess to the Lord and walk blamelessly for Him Why we still have time. That is, John says that when He comes, we can be abiding in Him so we may have confidence at His coming and not be ashamed. If Jesus Christ were to come back right now, right this instant, would we be ashamed? Is there anything in our life that we have not, uh, quote-unquote, given to him or is there some secret sin we're living with or or you know whatever i've known a couple people in my life married men that have women on the side for years never tell them you know, their wives don't know they go out of town and they they you know i knew a pastor dean i knew a pastor very well pastor for almost 30 years that fell from the pulpit because he had a person in his congregation on the side for years of unconfessed sin and, it, and the power was gone and he lost his ministry, he's lost his family, lost everything. And even to this day, it's been a few years, he's not walking with Christ. Let us now examine ourselves, prepare to meet our God, Jesus is coming. And thank God, in Christ, he's coming for his own, not in judgment, but it should be an expectation that we all have. For behold, he says in verse 13, He who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is. Now some commentators means thinks that this is God saying he declares to man what man's own thought is, or declares to man what God's thought is. But he, he makes the morning darkness, he treads the high places of the earth, the Lord of hosts is his name. You know, I was thinking about where, you know, the New Testament says, you know, that the light is, darkness is light to you. You know, um, God dwells in light, and in him there is no darkness. Think about that. There's no darkness. We don't have to walk in the dark. We don't have to be confused anymore. We don't have to struggle over sin anymore. You've got a problem with sexual sin, give it to Christ. Well, I tried that. No, you didn't. If you said, I tried that, and you still have problems with continual, continual, year after year, you have not given it to God. What you're saying is that he does, either doesn't care, or he's not powerful enough to take care of it. Both are false. He loves you with an everlasting love, and he has the power. He will take care of it. Or anything, greed, it doesn't matter what the problem is. Let's get right with Christ. That's what, what he had Amos pleading with. Remember, uh, that Amos was taken out from following the sheep and, and plucking little fig trees. God took him to, to Bethel for a specific reason, for a specific prophecy, for a specific time, and that's all we know of him. For all we know, when he fulfilled what God had him do, he went back to doing what he was doing. 
And his message is, judgment is coming. His message is, prepare to meet your God. His message is, for years you have done these things. God has done everything to get your attention, and you still don't seek him. Wow. The Lord of hosts is his name. God pleads with Israel to return to him. He pleads. I can't, you know, that still amazes me that the God of the universe loves me and he's grieved when I sin. He could wipe me out and create. He, didn't, he doesn't have to deal with me. Who am I? And he does it. Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentational house of Israel, chapter 5. Hear this word. This is a severe warning from God. Judgment is coming. Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. You know, that's, that's an understanding of, if you look at, at the book of Lamentations, which Jeremiah says, you'll get that flavor. You'll understand how God is grieved over his people. The virgin of Israel has fallen, verse 2. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to rise, raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. That is a spiritual precedent. Do you know that Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that all Israel will be saved? Zechariah, all through the prophets, God says specifically in Zechariah that only a third of Israel will be saved. A third of the true remnant spiritual seed of Israel. So this is a true precedent. You know, I love that when, when Abraham says, if, if you're going to destroy the city, if there's 50, 50 righteous, will you, will you spare it? <laughs> How many does it go down to? I don't know. It's not a quiz, but is it going to like 10, 1, something? I don't know. So merciful our God is. That's a precedent. Judgment is always his last uh, recourse, if you will. The virgin of Israel has fallen. There's no one to raise her up, verse 2. Verse 3, again, it goes up by a thousand, a hundred, a hundred ten, the house of Israel. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. That is a precedent that God is setting forth. Seek me and live. He set the precedent of, I have put before you today, life and death, choose life. Really? But I thought, I didn't think I had any choice. I thought that God should either chose some to heaven and chose some to hell. I thought I didn't have a choice. You have a choice. And the Christian has a choice every day to walk with Christ. To not do his own way, but to wake up every morning and say, Lord, today I am yours. You're my master. What will you have me to do? The precedent, Paul says in Galatians, his salvation set a pattern. And what did he do on the road to Damascus? Lord, who art thou? I'm Jesus, whom you persecuting. Lord, what will you have me to do? That is the precedent of what we are to do, to please God every morning. Lord, this day is yours. I know I have to go to work. I know I go to that workplace I don't like or whatever. But what would you have me to do? God is pleased with that type of language. Wow. Seek me and live. Look at verse 5. But do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, 
nor pass over to Reseba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity. You know, when we say, when the Lord says, seek me and live, what it means, and we touched on this a little bit last week, it means basically to seek with the utmost care and diligence. You know, you look at the Proverbs, and diligence is man's most precious possession and so forth. Diligence is where is where really I think the rubber meets the road. The Christian heart is tested, I believe, with diligence. And we see that verses 4, 6, and 14. He's earnestly pleading, don't go to Bethel, don't go to Gilgal, don't go to these places, don't go to these false prophets, don't go to these places that you're, that are easily sway you. <clears throat> even my even my man Joseph down in Egypt when he was when he was entering temptation three or four times, he fled Potiphar's wife. He didn't even think about it. He fled. He knew he couldn't stand temptation. Most of us can't. That's why First Corinthians, I think it's ten thirteen or somewhere around there, says that no temptation has hit man. It's such as common man, but God is faithful, who will provide the way of escape. Listen, if you if you're messing around with that 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 certain place on the internet or whatever, you keep messing around, it's going to bite you. It's going to get you. Temptation is stronger than our natural selves can handle, but it's nothing compared to God. Jesus was tempted in all areas, as we are, yet without sin. If temptation is not sin; it's what we do with it. If we allow it to 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 fester into fruition by our desires, it becomes sin, and that's what God is pleading here. Don't go to these false places of worship. Don't don't give me your lips and your heart be somewhere else. Give me your heart and your lips will follow. That's what the New Testament says. We give our heart to Christ, we follow Him with everything we have, and what's going to happen? The fruit of our lips, the praise to His name, that's what's going to follow. That's what happened to David when he fell off Bathsheba for a whole year when he didn't, didn't repent, and all that happened. What happened when he repented? Boom, the fruit of his lips, he praised His name. Psalm 51. You forgave me my sin, and then I entered the joy of your salvation. And what's the next verse say? That he went and he convicted transgressors. He taught the way of God. That's just the way it is. We need, Time is short. We need to really assess where we are in our walk with Jesus Christ. It's something we need to do. We need to do it as a church. We need to do it as individuals. We need to do it as husbands. We are hearing more and more these days where husbands are lacking the spiritual diligence and the spiritual fortitude and the backbone to lead their wives. No wonder we have chaos. No wonder we have women that are trying to be men and men that are trying to be women. And God is saying here, seek me and live. Don't, don't enter into these things. It's important. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it. With no one to quench it in Bethel, <laughs> no one can. It's false worship there. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. Look at this. This is falsity. This is and look at look at the magnitude of this next verse. Where it says, he made the Joe. He made the plight. Somebody help me here. And Ryan. He's talking about this, the constellation, the, the, the absolute magnitude and majesty of God. 
He turns the shadow of death into morning. He makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Wow. You know, one interesting thing about thunderstorms, for example, I was talking to, to uh, my son. He just got back to Mississippi from deployment. He says, there's a massive thunderstorm going on here. Dad, it's great. We've got to talk about it a little bit. And God causes thunder and lightning, and the lightning goes travels through the air and emits certain helium and, and other elements, and it falls to the ground, and, and it, it fertilizes the ground. God fertilizes our crops. He's majestic. Job talks a lot about God scattering the lightning as he will, and it's, it's magnitude. So God is saying, why are you going to this false worship? You think you're worshiping me. You're not. You're miserable. You're lying in death. You're lying in sin. And then he goes right in to say, you don't know who I am. I am the one that threw the stars into place, that spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. God bless you, Samuel. And he spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. He, when he threw out and made the stars, he knew exactly what he was going to make them. We look at the Young Dipper. I remember my kids were little. And in Nevada, anyway, we get out in the desert, and it was absolutely dark, and the stars were suspended. You could see the, the little dipper, you know. And uh, you look forward, and you can see all these other constellations. And, and uh, God, that's, God is majestic. So if you, you place that, if he's that majestic, he, he's worthy of all that we have. Versus, are you serious? Giving him lip service? Uh, we knew an a individual that, uh, that was reported one day, and he said this to me, and I, and I was kind of thrown back by it, i got to admit, but about going to church. Well, you know, he'd rather be somewhere else because it was just a spirit, just a Christian duty. Something that had to be done. And, and you kidding me? That's the attitude here. Doing these things, doing these worship, doing these these these. Uh, in fact, they were sacrificing uh, sacrifices that that were not pleasing to the Lord, and they knew it. The Lord God is His name. Look at verse nine. He reigns upon the strong, so that fury comes upon the fortress. They hate, verse 10, the one who rebukes in the gate. Uh, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Wow. We know what the remnant is really like because the Bible says that the remnant love the word of God. The remnant love to hear the word of God. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 8 and see how when they came back with Nehemiah and they built the wall and they, they dedicated that to to the uh, to the people, look at read it. What they did, they rejoiced. All that could understand stood from early morning to afternoon. They stood up, hearing the word of God. They were weeping, and Jeremiah says, "Don't weep now. It's time for that. Don't weep now, but but be glad for the joy of the Lord is your strength." The remnant will always love the word of God, and they will always love hearing and being taught the word of God. That's how we can know the remnant versus the one that. Say, oh wow, you know, I guess it's time to read my Bible this morning. Well, actually, I gotta go, so I'll get it tomorrow. You know? They hate the one, verse 10 again, who rebukes in the gate. They abhor the one who speaks brightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor, verse 11, take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone. Yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. 
For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. The prudent. They keep silent at this time. It's an evil time. I think that's the time in which we live as well. You know, Jesus, when he was going to the cross, he turned around and says, Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for your children. If they are doing these things in the green, when I am here, when justice and righteousness is exposed, what are they going to do when it is dry? He says, verse 14, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you, as you have spoken. Hate evil, verse 15, love good, establish justice in the gate, that it may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He says, he's saying, do these things and avert judgment. We're looking at that today. Israel. God had graciousness to the remnant. We see that in uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the, the remnant came back, built that wall that was broken down. He was crushed. He was brokenhearted. God gave him free course from the, the kings and everything else. Then we see Israel coming back, building the temple, reestablishing this. We see that the Jews in Jesus' time, that they, they had gotten to a false sense of worship, a false sense of, of security, a false sense of, of their religion. Then we see Jesus crucified in AD 70. Romans came in and desecrated their temple. And there we go again, dispersion from all over the globe. The wandering Jew is everywhere. And then, then, then things start amazingly happening. God starts sending Men out there that are going back to reading the Word of God, and all of a sudden something starts happening in the 20th century that nobody ever would have thought happened. The Jews are back in their land. So, no wonder he says, See good and not evil, verse 14. God will be with you. Look at verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this. There shall be wailing in the streets, in all streets. And they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, you got to understand that in the vernacular of biblical language, woe is what it means. Whoa. It's like when I was a child, and I didn't get in trouble much, but if I went too far, I knew when my mom says, you are in hot water, it was over with. I knew the next sentence coming after that, wait until your father gets home. And guess what was happening in the hot water? I was sitting in my room, stewing in the hot water, waiting for judgment. And that's exactly what's happening today. And that's exactly what happens to men that go their life rejecting God, rejecting God, rejecting God. How can they reject the loving kindness of God our Savior 
and be in in a place like America that's been so saturated with the gospel and reject him. And what are they doing now? They're sitting in Hades awaiting judgment. I think part of the fear and the torment of Hades right now is the fact that men are waiting there, waiting judgment to be cast forever into the lake of fire. When God comes up to that point, we need to beware. Us as Christians, what are we doing? Are we saying, well, we're saved. As long as I'm saved, I don't care about anybody else. No. No. I think I'll end at verse verse 18 here. Woe to you again who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. Let me read on down just a little bit and we'll be through. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and meet a bear. You're not going to escape it. It's not, ooh, I got away from that. Wow, that's great. No, it's not going to be that way. Man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark and no brightness in it? If you really want to get a good indication of the day of the Lord, go back to Isaiah chapter 2 and start following all the way through there. God says he's going to bring every proud and every lofty person or nation to the ground. It's not going to be escaping. Nothing is going to happen that God will not take into judgment. Woe to you who desire that day. You know, I believe that today, and I'll end with this, I believe that personally, as I look at things, and this is just something for you to think about, we have people today, not only as individuals, but as a nation, we're laughing at judgment. Just like Peter says in the first century, he wrote, what they're saying, they're mocking, they're saying, where is the promise of this coming? Are you kidding me? Everything's the same. In fact, it's better for me. You know, I'm like that dude that Jesus is talking about, man. I don't know about you. My fields are like producing absolute mounds of grain. I'm getting all kinds of, of produce. What do you mean judgment? I don't see any judgment. It's just like on that the movie, A Christmas Carol, Scrooge, as we call it. You know, when Marley's in there and he's telling Scrooge about the chains that he forged link by link, yard by yard, all through his life. And, and Scrooge is going, I don't see any chains. What are you talking about? I'm filthy rich. They laugh at judgment. They don't want judgment. We have com- we are not comical. It's comical in the fact of how the non-believers in Jesus Christ look at that. We have movies made about Armageddon, for example. How men are going to be the victors in Armageddon. Men are not going to be the victors in Armageddon. Let me tell you what. Man is going to be brought low. In fact, I'll end tonight. You don't have to go there, but read from, from Isaiah chapter 2 real quick. This is, this is wonderful. Thank you for bearing with me for a little bit. Sometimes I get a little bit carried away. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 10 says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the glory of His majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of man shall be brought down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. I'm reading Isaiah 2. I'm on verse 12. Now, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, it shall be brought low. And you can trace that if you have a good, uh, a good line of references or what have you. 
but you could trace it. You know, the Schofield study by one of the good things about that is he traces things like this. But what have you? But you trace these things through the Bible, and you see that God is is saying, you know, pleading with the nations, pleading with His people. But isn't that where we are today? People are melting because of fear on one hand, and yet the other hand, they're bragging about. You know, how good they are, and how righteous they are, and how perfect they are. And, and, if, and if you hit me on the right cheek, you better watch out, because I'm going to smash you on the left. And don't you look at me that way. <laughs> you know, anything you want, the hidingness in the, of man, and the proud, and they laugh in the face of judgment. This world is coming to an end. Next, next week, when we, when we finish this chapter, we're going to hear from Stephen in, in Acts chapter 7 in his long discourse. And by the way, we've talked about that often, but if you want to get a short uh, rendition of the history of Israel, look at, at Stephen's dialogue to the religious leaders. It's, it's wonderful. We're going to see in, chapter, in verses 39 through 43 um, how he's going to, going to use these passages we're going to be talking about. And again, I want to close with this. Remember, the only thing men learn from history is that men never learn from history. And uh, God is showing that through his prophets. Father, I just thank you for this evening. Lord, I thank you for your word, for the steadfastness and the loving kindness of the Lord. Your mercies never cease, they're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And because of your mercies, will not consume. And I thank you that the Word of God is living and active and sharpening to it its sword. And Father, I pray tonight that the seed of the Word of God would run deep in our fertile hearts. I pray that you would plow them, Lord, with your ever-piercing Word and I, that we would just surrender to you in word, thought, and deed, that we would walk in the light of Jesus Christ, rejoicing and always realizing that we have all things to be joyful about. We have nothing to frown about. Everything that has been given to us by a loving God who loves us more than we can even imagine. And I thank you again tonight for these people, and I just pray that you would go as we go, and that would fill our time, uh, even as we go to sleep with you. And I ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. and the stars. He's saying, let's go a little bit further than that. If you can measure the span of heaven, then and only then, I will cause Israel to quit being a nation for me forever. You go to Genesis 12, 15, and 17, you see what he talks to Abraham. He always finishes it with forever. God's promises are eternal. And therefore, when we go to the New Testament and they see, I am born in Jesus Christ, I am His forever. I have been grafted in to the olive tree. Is it going to be any wonder that God can take the natural branches and graft them into His natural olive tree? Wow. And Father, I thank you for this evening. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the excitement that it brings. 
And Lord, nothing is too hard or difficult for you. And Father, I pray that we would search the scriptures to see that these things are so. That we would be Bereans, Lord, not simply taking word, the word of, of the great apostle Paul or whoever, but that we would hear it gladly and go back and search the scriptures again to see if these things are so. And I pray that we would have the joy of the Lord, which, which is our strength. And thank you again for receiving these people. Um, you're just a wonderment. Love you and thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.